what it do, baby? And welcome to Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan. And with me is Michael Turkel, who is a violin fellow at the New World Symphony based in Miami Beach, Florida. And we'll be talking about food in all its tasty glory. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for being here. Hi, Patty. Thank you for having me. Of course. I probably first heard you at San Francisco Conservatory of Music. I am a walking noise complaint, as my Twitter bio reads. It's something I like maybe discovered or was mentioned to me where it's like, dude, you're loud. Like your voice <laughs> cuts. You know, I remember like walking into the atrium of the San Francisco Conservatory building and being like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> Well, and that atrium is also very open, spacious, and very beautiful. And I can just imagine the amplification of your voice in there and right. remember and call it well. But and for me, it was never a problem. I was like, oh, yay, Michael's around, you know? And of course, there was always like, yeah, there was my voice or whatever. And there was also like, there'd always be like Tuesday afternoon when like VPL would get out and all of the singers yes. left the recital hall or the concert hall or whatever. And they'd just be like talking about what just happened yes. and unpacking some performance that they liked or didn't like or whatever but you know they're singers right. so right it's just like really loud the din and then of, of course there were like the guitarists who would just sit anywhere and practice because they could simply sit anywhere and practice it was yeah. sort of like this catch-22 of like well why don't you practice in a practice room but then it's like they're practicing in a practice room and it's just like but i want to be practicing in that practice right. room so why don't you just sit on a bench somewhere you know right what a time it's a unique place for it sure it really is so yeah i mean basically we met at that conservatory and a really neat time and we were actually in different degrees though I I think we entered the school at the same time, but you were in an right. undergrad and I was starting my first master's there or something like that, right? Right. So, I yeah, mean, 2011. Okay. My God. Oh, my God. That is, let me count, 10 years ago. No. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Years ago. That makes me feel super old. What have I done in 10 years? I like. <laughs> We've improved. That's we've improved. True. That's true. We're, we've improved. <laughs> I think we're happy with where we're at right Are now. Are we better you know? people like, than we were 10 years ago? I don't know about that. I'm not going to answer <laughs> that question. But, you know, it's like you ask yourself 10 years ago, it's like, where do you see yourself? And you wow, tell you right. tell that version of yourself then where you're at now. And I think at least like for me, I would be pretty happy. I think your 2011 version of yourself would probably be pretty happy too. I would be like, would be like shut up. That's not happening kind of thing. Right. Like, are you kidding? Like the, the journey's been great. Yeah. Wow. What a weird way. I've never thought about it in the retrospectiveness of it. That question always gives me anxiety because I'm like, how? Do I don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. Why are you asking me now? But yeah, actually, in yeah. retrospect, I'm like, oh, that's actually kind of interesting. Because it's like there's oh, the so many. great. Yeah. Or like there's so many thoughts you had and you're certain of maybe back then, but they're so different after 10 years. But it's nice to look back and see how it unfolded. Anyway, right. I'm sorry. I'm going on a complete tangent. I don't really have a specific funny memory of you or I, it's not like coming to me it's more that i just really appreciated your presence around the conservatory because again not only could i hear you before you showed up in a room but i knew when you came into a room that you were gonna like light up the party and it was gonna be fun and it was gonna be really warm and inviting you know i just always remember you being super laid back and really chill and really someone approachable well that's nice of you to say can i tell you how i remember you and a somewhat funny story sure yeah of course okay so 
I remember getting to San Francisco and sort of feeling a little lost. And, you know, I wasn't really sure. I mean, when I got to San Francisco Conservatory, I didn't know a single person who was going to be there except for maybe one or two acquaintances. I didn't know what to expect for the level. I just had no idea what to expect. And I remember one of the first things I noticed was how you and Cindy would get to school really, really early. And you would practice all the time and you you guys were just intense and just like setting a standard of a work ethic that it was like attainable, but also pretty inspiring. And I, I, I remember seeing that from you two and just being like, okay, I want to follow what they're doing. I want to try and touch that a little bit because uh-huh. like that's going to yield some really good results. And it did, uh-huh. obviously. I saw that and I was just like, okay, that seems like a good thing to follow. But my funny story is about busking. And oh. I loved that part of living yes. in San Francisco being at the conservatory and you just don't get that at any other school i'm sorry if you're in new york it's like there's all like the hurdles with the permits plus there's just like so much saturation in classical music that it's just kind of like you're a string quartet in the subway you know groundbreaking so you you had your cello quartet and you wouldn't really busk often in the castro but you would do like the morning rush hour we tried and those were some hard wake-up times but i'll never forget i would say there were like three maybe four viable spots to use there was powell station the two sides of powell station and then there was like maybe one maybe two parts of montgomery station you know like the thick financial and tourist districts of san francisco and i remember i wanted to do the morning busking and that required that someone would have to like get up and get to a spot by like 6 or 6 30 in the morning or whatever and i was like all right i'm on it i have my coffee and my little traveler i'm like ready to go or whatever and i like pull out of the station and i just like see you right there you didn't even have to say anything like there was just like this look on your face where you're just like yeah i don't lose (laughs) i don't lose i i'm here i did this i live just as far as you do i live off the n so like it's even worse for me and guess what I still win. So you were probably like making it rain that day, you know, and maybe I found a spot later that day. I don't really totally remember. But first of all, there's nothing worse than when you want to do the morning busking and you get up early and there's no spot. I mean, it's just like you end up at like Civic Center Station or something, which is it's just not as good. Yeah. It's a little sketchier, too. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I feel so No, no, no. Don't be sorry. I was just like... Damn, that hustle, mad respect. You're also carrying like an instrument, you know, like a large (laughs) instrument. And I mean, but like a large instrument. And you had like the music stand and you had like music for four people that you had probably arranged yourself. And I was just like, I could have just woken up a half hour earlier. But no. She doesn't lose. She just doesn't lose. No, no, no. That took me down memory lane for sure. I do also agree with you. There's no other place like San Francisco to go busking, especially when you were in conservatory at SFCM, because it was such a wonderful way to make just some side money and really welcome people to the day. You know, even though, yes, we had to wake up at the, you know, crack of dawn to get there. The other benefit, though, was actually not only getting to play some of my arrangements and cello quartets and stuff, the appreciation that I would get from the the people that were going to work was just so warm and welcoming. And I just felt like I was brightening their day. At least they heard some music first thing in the morning. I also remember there's this 
one moment that I was super, super tired to claim a spot, you know, in the busking area. And it was just me and Sarah Stone, previous guest of the podcast. And we were just doing some duets before our other quartet mates came. And I remember playing the most amazing A on my low C string ever in my life. I've never been able to produce that sound ever since. We both had to comment on it. I was like, wow, that was like one of the best notes you've ever made. I was like, I know. I can't do it it again. acoustics or like the it crowd was like, or... I was just it was like I think total relaxation in my body because I was so exhausted and it was wow. just yeah just something about the way I curved that bow at that one moment I just will never forget that reminds me of a really amazing story that Mark Sokol told once like about oh. the Concord Quartet was doing like some Beethoven recording and they like couldn't get the articulation they wanted on a note or I think maybe it was your teacher yeah. he couldn't get the articulation he wanted and I guess at one point he just started like screaming and the way Mark told it was amazing and he was just like yeah you couldn't even hear it on the recording but Norman just went oh (laughs) (laughs) that's right that was for certifiably insane (laughs) yeah 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 no totally I mean well those are all our mentors for sure I mean huge yeah, I mean, Mark Sokol, rest in peace. We love you so much, and we miss you every day. I miss him every day. Every but, single day. Yeah, but I believe that story was for Opus 59, number two, last movement. Getting that first sportsando in the lower voices. Wow. Yeah, it's a surprising part. Yeah. But I'm just imagining with his voice and just like the conviction of, you couldn't even hear it in the recording, you know, but it, <laughs> it wasn't the same without it. Yeah. I was like, Really? Oh, God, I missed those coaching so much. I really, really do. He was the best chamber coach ever. Most dedicated. He also was a really good cook. I don't know if you've ever experienced his cooking. Never did. No. But he was a very good cook, too. So it ties into our theme. He was generous. And he was the most passionate instructor. He believed in every single person. Every single person. Anyone could do anything that he could tell you to. You know what I mean? Like, And that is so rare in any teacher. There's some teachers that just kind of like, oh, they're just never going to quite get it, you know? But no, yeah. Mark was all about, I'm going to figure out a way for you to do the thing that I know you can do. It was- He also executed. He never lost, you know? Like, <laughs> I think that, and we've talked about this before, but that was like the trademark of the elite nature of San Francisco's chamber program was not how the best groups performed, but it was how the worst groups performed. Yes! I mean, the expectations were very clear. You're going to join this program. You're going to play in the chamber music seminar twice a semester and you're going to perform the entire work at the end of the semester and that to me sounded a pretty reasonable expectation or whatever so to leave and go to other places where that wasn't the expectation and performing in a chamber music concert didn't feel like a big performance opportunity that was very strange for me and i'm sure for you as well oh it was a really hard transition i know i've mentioned this class in the past but that chamber music class that we had every Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. It reminds me of a quote that I heard, and I'm obviously not going to quote it totally correctly right now, but it was a Maria Callas quote that she said that she learned the most from watching the worst people in a masterclass, if that makes sense. Not to like, and of course I was the worst in something at some point too, but I remember inhaling so much information, so much knowledge from watching and watching progressively how my colleagues were improving week by week and also the level of coaching that was spoken from all of my faculty because it it is literally like a masterclass but a kind of family style masterclass where everyone
everyone is performing in front of everyone and the faculty critiques each group you know for 30 minutes or whatever and yeah Just i mean the, the sense of community there too it was really remarkable and a group would perform they would get through the movement or whatever and there was that moment where eight of the faculty members they would just like look at each other and, and it was sort of like all right do you have anything to say like who wants to say you know and it was always like there were unexpected moments always with some of the faculty members and so much of the time they always said just the right thing yes and then it was also fun to get moments when they would disagree and it was interesting yeah. for me to watch how they would cooperate afterward how they would negotiate that to me I think is like you can't really teach that in a coaching you, you have to just witness how that happens and then yeah. that makes you knowledgeable of how to do that in a chamber music setting because obviously we're always going to run into disagreements anywhere and obviously this is translatable in our modern life as well like anyway it was just a wonderful class and yeah. the kingpin of that class was Mark Sokol and we miss him terribly we we miss that guy so much one last thing I want to say about the chamber program and maybe this sort of feels like any string quartet or like any chamber ensemble that you're trying to get together it feels a lot like dating oh I mean you always had your group sort of figured out and people wanted to work with you and for me I always felt like it was kind of hard to get the right group together in school because there were certain people that were like I want to work with this person but I don't know if they want to work with me so it's like I wanted to ask them like hey you know do you want to like read chamber music sometime or like you know do you want to like be in a group with me or something (laughs) and it really and then you'd read something together and either you'd just be like so you know I think this went well I think we should do this again or like or like or you just like ghost like I definitely did both of that where I was and it really chamber music in school feels a lot like dating it was really uncomfortable yeah, no, I, I certainly, I relate with that too. I had to do both as well of like, I really want to play with this person. Does this person want to play with me? Uh-oh, right. how do I ask? Yeah, that kind of thing. What if they think I suck? Do I suck? Like- but they've played with this person in the past, so that means they want to, yeah, all that stuff. Oh my God, yeah, it's like so much overthinking. It's just like, and why can't the faculty just match me up perfectly, you know? <laughs> they won't do that. They, they're too busy already. Yeah, so. Oh, what a time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, total tangent. Can you tell me about your pets? Oh, my little Yorkies. Okay, so the Turkels are not a dog family or were not a dog family until November of 2019, which feels like, you know, five years ago. We always had a cat growing up. We had this great cat named Miss Vicky and she was perfect. Like she just didn't care. She passed away in 2011. You know, she was wonderful and we didn't have a pet in the house until my mom, she was driving to work and it was like Venice Boulevard and Crenshaw Boulevard. You know, not the best neighborhood and she sees this little dog crossing the street and it's just like oh my god I have to help this dog so she goes to check and see if there's a chip like is there anything there's nothing so she's like you know this could be it dad's on board so I was kind of nonplussed about this honestly because I was pretty like afraid of dogs for the most part and for no apparent reason so I came home for Thanksgiving I met this dog and I was like oh this dog's perfect she's basically like a cat she's not high maintenance or anything. So I go back to Miami and then I come back to LA again for Christmas and the new year and stuff like that. And the dog is noticeably larger than the last time I saw her, which was three weeks prior. I mentioned to my parents, what have you been feeding this dog? 
And they're like, I don't know. I mean, I didn't think we'd been feeding her that much more than normal. And I was like, okay, so she's gotten larger and you're not feeding her anything. So have you considered that she might be pregnant? Mm -hmm. And they're like, we hadn't considered that. No. Fast forward, she has eight puppies. Wow. There are nine dogs in the Turkel residence. So yeah, my parents were pretty in over their heads. Ultimately, like three of the puppies didn't make it, which I think is that that's sort of a common thing to happen or at least that's you know that's our way of coping with it and then yeah there were five puppies that remained three went away and my parents kept two of the puppies one is like this little teddy bear yorkie and the other is like this all black yorkie with like a little white goatee and so their names are courtney dovey and Bo, and they're adorable i miss them so much what would we be without our pets especially during this time like i'm sure sushi and you really hitting it off we have been snuggle buddies okay michael you're ready for some spitfire questions let's do it mozart or beethoven beethoven shostakovich or prokofiev prokofiev netflix or video games netflix basil or cilantro Ooh, that hurts in californian still basil oh wow i thought you were gonna go cilantro me too but i wow i think there was just like there are more foods that i like basil in you know it's like between like thai food and italian food and like with vietnamese food there's a little bit of both that's true mexican food it's like all cilantro and Uh, stuff like that but oh there's something about basil okay all right harry potter star wars or lord of the rings star wars symphony or chamber music symphony coffee or tea coffee Favorite practice room? You know, I really miss those practice rooms in San Francisco that would face west, overlooking Twin Peaks and like all of Hayes Valley and stuff like that. Yes. And you would like, you'd be able to like have like a firsthand look at like the microclimates of San Francisco where it's yes. like 80 degrees in Hayes Valley, but then like Six. 65 degrees in like extremely dense fog across mm-hmm. Twin Peaks or whatever. That was really cool. Well, it was also fun as you can see like students walking to Mandarin Village. Mandarin exactly. Village. Mandarin Villa. Or, yeah, I was like, I, and I think there's a new, there's a new like Shanghai's restaurant that took the space of Mandarin yeah, Villa. Yeah, I know. Maybe. I know Mandarin Villa is not there anymore, but yeah. We're, Rip. Yeah, Rip is right. Oh, so many oh. memories there. But you could see students like, oh, they're not practicing. <laughs> like they're not yeah, practicing. exactly. Or it's like, or like, oh, what are those two doing together? Right, you know? right, right, <laughs> right, right. Totally, right. Oh, I see them walking around a lot. Like, <laughs> yeah. Favorite professor shout out? I mean, it's- we've we've already given Mark Sokol a big yeah. old shout out, but also Jody and Bettina and Jennifer and Jean-Michel and just the whole 2011 to 2015 chamber music panel. Big shout out. I know I probably took years off of some of their lives, but they made my world a better place for it. Yeah, exactly. I don't think they realized just how much of a positive impact they had on all of us. Yes. But actually, they probably do. So this is Jody Levitz, who's now actually at the University of Miami. That's right. Yeah, Jody and Bettina are both and Bettina, not too far from me. Bettina Musamelli, violin faculty there as well. And then John michel Fontenot, who is my past cello instructor at San Francisco Conservatory, Jennifer Culp. Most inspired musical hero of any genre? Ooh, that's tough. Right now, I got to give it to Hilary Hahn. Oh. She's been cranking it out. I mean, even before the pandemic, she's been such an open book 
she's been so real with life as a soloist and how exhausting it is and she just like walked away for a whole year without performing and of course like kind of bad timing because then she got even more time without performing because of corona but she's just been like writing about her practice journey in great details and really humanizing herself because she's had more moments than i can count of just unbelievable technical and musical proficiency and just like unattainable talent so for her to be like so open writing about how like god yeah i'm just not feeling good about this today or you know i just don't feel like practicing today i'm just gonna do some scales or something or straight up just like talking about how life is exhausting she Mm -hmm. has a family she has two kids now she wants to spend more time with them and so she's gonna do it and you know of course that comes from a certain place of privilege because she's been successful for all these years now but still i I see that and I'm like, wow, I both want to work harder because of that, but also I want to work smarter because of that. Yes. Got to hand it to her. Cool. Most transformative performance experience? Ooh, that's tough too. It's going to have to be, I was subbing at New World, but at that point I was already like going to be a fellow. So it was the last concert of... 2017 2018 season and mtt was conducting Mahler nine love that symphony so much and also being with mtt who's like this amazing Mahler scholar and interpreter and all around like love the guy it was an amazing performance and i was sitting at the very back of the second violins and we were sitting antiphonally so i was on the wrong side of the stage or whatever but i was just like there was a moment in the last movement the slow movement where he stopped us during a rehearsal and was like This is the kind of music where you want to really enjoy the moment. And I want you to like look at a friend across the stage or something when you get to this moment or whatever. And we got to that moment and I was just like looking like, you know, 75 feet across the stage to my really good friend who's sitting in the back of the first violins. And we just got to this moment and it was just like chills what a way to like make that so intimate though because we don't normally look that far across our section in an orchestra right but that's like a genius way of connecting the orchestra even further in a musician way of playing music together literally across distance you know and it was so genuine and it was on camera too and like you know it was like filmed for one of those wall cast concerts but still you know it's like it it reminds you like those times not that you know this orchestra is like the berlin philharmonic or whatever but when you look at one of those videos and you see like entire sections moving together or something like that and you're thinking maybe that's where that comes from they're just like known moments in the music where you just like have a really nice connection with someone across the stage and you know that's whether it's self-indulgent or whatever you want to call it i think that does translate to whoever's watching but also to everybody on stage i mean it just like raises the level yeah that was a cool moment one i still have not forgotten about yeah Next piece you'd like to learn? Oh my god, just anything in orchestra, you know. I just <laughs> I just want to I just want to be back in a full orchestra, but no, I honestly I want to learn Beethoven 59 too. That's a great piece. That's one I've been sort of Okay, call you know, me up. I'll play it. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> let's go to you cuz I don't want to be in Miami this summer. It's too hot. <laughs> but seriously, like and I've been listening to Belsea, Belcea, Belcea? I don't quartet? know. I actually. don't know either. The B E L C E A quartet. I've been listening to their recording and like they're amazing. 
I didn't know about them until recently. They're incredible. Yeah. Very inspiring. I mean, just like the way they play quiet dynamics. I'm just like obsessed with it. <laughs> and there's a lot of moments in that quartet to do so as well. In true Beethoven form, it's all about the extremes of dynamics. So You bet. Yeah. What yeah. an absolute thriller. Totally. Well, Michael, you made it through the Spitfire questions. Congratulations. We nice. did it, Joe. <laughs> All right, Michael, can you walk us through your musical origin story? How did you yes. get a fiddle in your hand? When did you decide to become a professional musician and walk us through to where you are today? Wow. All right. So we're in the third grade, eight years old, and it's show and tell day. Someone walks in with a cello and plays probably like the first movement of the first box suite. And this guy, like he was a pretty close friend of mine. He like literally didn't even know how to go to the bathroom by himself yet. And he was eight years old. He was a real nerd, like a real kind of dweeb. And I remember like listening to him and being like, that is so moving. That's so moving. And I just remember like looking around the room and everybody was mesmerized. And I, I went home that day and I was like, mom, I kind of want to play the cello. And they were like, <laughs> you don't want to play the cello. We don't want to buy you a cello. Like we know, we know how, how short your attention span is. So we're just not going to do that. We do, however, have a three quarter sized violin up in the closet. What? And I was like, you never told me that. And they were like, oh yeah, your dad used to play in middle school. And so your grandparents bought him a violin and then he gave up. But yeah, we have a violin in our closet. I was like, oh wow, I want to try that. So I climbed up in their closet, got the violin. Obviously, I'm sure you remember what it was like picking up a cello for the first time and trying to like get any sound. It's not natural. And like picking up a violin and trying to make sound out of a violin is simply not natural. So anyway, I was eight years old. Violin was in terrible shape. The bow had like no hair. And then three years later, finally, I got to have my first violin lesson. We finally found like an opportunity to get a teacher. And it was at the Marlboro School for Girls co-ed summer camp. I know, a little strange. But yeah, I was in the sixth grade and it was like a 30 minute lesson five days a week at the summer camp, which in reality was great that's sort of a good thing to have when you're first starting just like a little bit each day you don't need to practice you don't need to work on much stuff you know it's just like having like guardrails for your first few months of playing or whatever and i really enjoyed it i wasn't good obviously because who is good after six weeks of violin playing i really enjoyed it got to middle school and i was like i really like music kind of fun like between you know having my mixtapes of classic rock on my sony walkman yes. and also like listening to Itzhak Perlman for the first time. Yes. I was kind of like, oh, wow, I kind of like violin or whatever. And so I like, you know, started to like make my way through the ranks of like my little public middle school music program or whatever. And I was like in the advanced orchestra and it was all exciting for me. And then I took the plunge and went to an arts high school because I was like, I kind of want to see where this goes, you know, like I kind of want to see, you know, if this is sort of right for me. And when I got to arts high school, it was amazing. There were weird people like me uh -huh. and there were serious people and there were people who were way better than I was. And then I started to go to the music camps like the BUTI, the Boston University Tanglewood Institute and like Meadowmount for two summers. 
at some point there, you know, whether it was like playing my first Mahler symphony or like playing my first full string quartet or something, I was kind of like, this feels right. But I was also really like late in the game. Like I started when I was 11 and a lot of people start when they're like three to yeah. six or something. Right. And so like I was still at that point studying with my very first violin teacher and he he didn't necessarily know what would be good for me at the college level. But I was definitely thinking about like going to a conservatory or music school or something like that. I ended up going to San Francisco Conservatory where we met, met my teacher who's concertmaster of the San Francisco Symphony. I was just like blown away by him. I was like, oh my God, I want to be you. It took me a long time to sort of be like, hey, he's your teacher. Maybe you should stop putting him on this exalted pedestal and right. just like work harder. Yeah, then I did my master's in Cleveland at the Cleveland Institute of Music, which was very different. Life in Cleveland is very different than life in San Francisco. Life at CIM is very different from life at SFCM. But okay. I think change is good for every musician. You spend too much time in a place and you can get sort of complacent or yes. you get a little too comfortable with the way things work. And then it's time to like move on to somewhere else. And you're just like, what? But, you know, it was good. And then graduated from CIM and then didn't really have anything until November 2017. I joined Lincoln Center Stage, which mm -hmm. is a piano quintet where you perform on cruise ships. Right. That was interesting, for sure. You do contracts that are like four or five months long. And I got to do a contract in the Caribbean, which was, of course, like, I mean, what do you want me to say? It's amazing. Yeah, like, like <laughs> every every single day, it's just like, oh, yeah, I'm in a private island in the Bahamas today. Right. Oh, yeah, you know, we played Brahms Quintet. And then, you know, the next day, it's like you show up in like Turks and Caicos, and you're just like drinking rum on the beach in the morning. Yeah, like life could have, be like, a lot worse. Yeah. Oh, my God, it was incredible. Yeah. And then uh, I did another contract in Alaska, which is, of course, very, very different. But I really fell in love with hiking there. We would do these incredible day hikes and then you know make it back to the ship and then take a really quick shower throw on a suit play a few scales and then go and play three concerts yeah three 45 minute long concerts you know sometimes we'd have to play like schumann quintet or like Dvorak american string quartet or something like that and it was just like overall it was a really nice experience it was a real test because you spend four months with the same five people in your group you know hopefully nothing bad happens and you also live unit to unit right next to each other and you can get really sick of people and you can also have the best times of your life right. with these people and you know being in a quartet you see these people every day you work with these people every day and you know sometimes something happens between you and another member of the group and it's just like the worst because you're in this vacuum and it's sort of like a crash course in diplomacy because mm -hmm. you can't you go can't scorched earth them. yeah you can't yeah. avoid them but you also can't go like scorched earth on someone because you've got to then play three concerts a night or like you've got to spend the next 17 weeks with this person or whatever and it's a good thing to learn how to do especially I have aspirations of being in an orchestra and chances are I'm gonna have like the same one or two stand partners you know if I get a job and right. like tenure in an orchestra so that and like playing whatever we wanted with chamber music and like all the different genres and stuff like that it was really cool plus great way to like get ahead financially um, right of course you're not paying rent you don't need to pay for food and drinks cost
cost anywhere from $1.10 to $3.30. It was pretty cool. So I always wanted to come to New World. Ever since like Doug Kwan and like Autumn, they used to sub with New World back when we were all at school together. And I always was just like, that sounds really cool. Getting to go to Miami Beach and like playing with an orchestra or whatever. So I wanted to make that happen. And like I had been on the sub list for some time, but I wanted to like be here, be here. And unfortunately, the auditions were happening while I was on a cruise. And it's sort of difficult to like leave the ship. Whole lot of lucky things happen. I was able to leave the ship. So I was in the Dominican Republic, casual, and um, <laughs> New World was having an audition in Miami. So I could just like leave the ship for a day, flew back to Miami, stayed there for a night, had my audition, sprinted to the airport, and then got on a plane to San Juan, Puerto Rico, where I caught the ship. Had my audition, got in, and here I am now. That's and nuts. That's wild. Congratulations, by the way. I mean, I love to stress myself out. I really do. Especially with like flights and stuff like that. Like, I think if this were like an Olympic sport, it would be like... you get the gold medal. I would get the gold medal for tight flying situations. Yeah. Or... I've done a lot with flights that raises a lot of eyebrows, for sure. Yeah, now I'm in my, my third season here. And like we were talking about earlier, it's like if we were talking with our scared young selves when we first got to SFCM in 2011 and we were saying like this is where we're at now I'd be pretty happy I think yeah. you'd be pretty happy too like it, I have it, a cat it, now. It, I'm happy <laughs> we have a cat we got dogs in the house yeah, yeah it's a good time you know yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be here and I also just like I want more and I can't wait for auditions to start happening again because yeah. that must have been know, the I biggest think... blow for you to experience during the pandemic a little bit I mean in a way I was burnt out I really needed some time to like sleep in and only play an hour a day or like a half hour a day you know but now I'm kind of like all right how do we manufacture some productivity how do we get to a place where it's like I have a sense of purpose and I'm sure it's great for you because like your quartet is playing more mm -hmm. and you're going through some more music and like here I'm grateful because New World's a place that will sort of facilitate whatever we want like it's not just like we want you to get an orchestra job I mean sure they want me to get an orchestra job I want me to get an orchestra job but also if I have an idea, they'll put it together. Sort of no questions asked. I mean, so I started a COVID quartet that, you know, I'm looking forward to like playing with again this summer when I'm back home. And we put together a recital back in November. And I was like, hey, guys, do you want to come to Miami and play a concert with like a couple of New World fellows? And we'll do like sextets and we'll do like great music. And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. And then I talked with New World people and they were like, yeah, we can make that happen. And I was like, all right, so I'm ready to buy your flights, everybody. And they were like, what? Oh, this is really <laughs> happening. Okay. It happened. And yeah, we put together like the Brahms G Major Sextet and Tchaikovsky Souvenir to Florence for like a live video audience with no actual audience there, which is disappointing considering like both of those pieces, you know, you sort of want the audience reaction a little bit. But generally, I'm feeling really lucky to be in a place that will like facilitate whatever. It's like this incubator for classical music. So that's where I'm at now. Yeah. It sounds like you're turning lemons into lemonade. Uh 
at the New World Symphony. It sounds also as if the organization is trying to support all its musicians in the best that it can at the current moment, rather than sort of pulling the ripcord on you guys, which is really great. Definitely. It's also sort of a testament that most classical musicians are workaholics a little bit. Do you sort of feel that way? Yes. It's like, I want to feel like I'm practicing and hanging on by a thread, barely learning all of this stuff, and then somehow throwing it together. You know, I don't, what's with all this time? Like, what's with all this, like, extra rest? It's like I'm going crazy here or something like that. Right, 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 right. Maybe we've been conditioned to operate like this, but it's it's strange. since, Since we both like hiking, I think of it like a hike. There's a mountain of repertoire to learn in whatever direction we want to go, chamber music, orchestral, solo, and we just want to keep climbing that mountain. And yeah, we can like yeah. sit on a bench and look at the view for a second, but we still want to keep going. That's how I see it. Yeah, but right now it's it's snowing and sleeting and there are avalanches and stuff like that. And so we can't keep going up to the top. I suppose. We can, but you know, it's just like... Oh, yeah, we... Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're trying our best. These are trying times for sure. On that note, shall we take a break? All right, let's okay. do that. Okay, we'll be right back. Welcome back from the break. So before the break, we were just ramping ourselves up to talk about food. I know I'm really excited to talk about food because I know how much we are both foodies and that we have a shared geographic origin of where we began to enjoy food so much. We both are from Southern California. You're from LA. I'm from San Diego, right? So already we grew up with the best Mexican food in the country. And I'm putting it out there just as a, specifically as a San Diegan, we have the best Mexican food. And Tex-Mex is different than Californian Mexican. And they're both different and different animals and beasts. But anyway, just start telling me about how you got into food or what is it about food that inspires you? I oh, mean, there's so much. I know, I feel like there's I'm asking so the much. dumb questions here. Like it's in the no, obvious, no. but. Oh man, I mean, there's just like so many places. To start. Like, first of all, God, it's like the Tex-Mex versus what, I guess they call Baja Mexican food, mm-hmm. which is something I had never heard of. We just call it Mexican food. They call it Tex-Mex. Like they are the ones who want to be different or whatever. <laughs> like, we're just kind of like, this we're just kind of like, this is what we know. Yeah. This is what we love. Yeah. I don't really care. This is great. Yeah. How did I start loving food? God, I don't know. I mean, my dad, he and I would do pretty crazy things to get a good meal. It's really anything for like, you know, that scene in Ratatouille when Antoine Ego tries the rat's ratatouille and he's like taken back to his childhood. Yes. And you know, he has just this moment of like bliss. I strive to feel that way a lot. Always looking for that perfect taco. I'm always looking for that perfect pizza or like that perfect slice of pizza or something. And I'm pretty intense about it. There were moments I was at the National Orchestral Institute in 2013. That's in College Park, Maryland. Didn't have my driver's license yet, but I sort of realized like, hey, we're actually pretty close to Philadelphia, where at the time, my favorite slice of pizza on the planet was. It was this Lorenzo and Sons pizzeria on South Street. So I convinced Serena, with whom we went to SFCM, Mm -hmm. to get a Zipcar membership to drive me and another friend of ours to Philadelphia from College Park, which probably took like three, maybe four hours, Mm -hmm. just to go get pizza. Yeah. (laughs) 
and some Philly cheesesteaks too. But it was like we spent all that time in the car. And by the way, like traffic in that part of the country honestly gives Southern California a real run for its, for its money. money. It's horrible. Like it is truly some of the worst things I've ever seen. It, and this is just like an example of like how I'm really intense about food. But the real boiling point was when I went to New York in May of 2019. We Pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, baby. So New World was finishing their season at Carnegie Hall. It was amazing. And then I was going to be starting a cruise ship contract in the middle of May. And before the cruise ship contract, we rehearsed in New York for two weeks to like get all of the programs together and like get our wardrobes and just like get off on the right foot. Mm -hmm. So I had 18 days in New York. And at some point, I decided I'm going to try a different slice of pizza or a different pizza every single one of these days. Wow, okay. So that meant pizza every Every single day day for 18 days. And that also sometimes meant two pizzas some days. Like there were days when I'm like, all right, well, I know I'm having pizza for dinner, but I also might have pizza for lunch because it's really easy. And my body hated me for it. Hated me for it. Absolutely hated me. My health teacher used to call pizzas heart attack pies. So (laughs) It's pretty true. I mean, luckily, like I kept it at just like cheese slices. You know, it wasn't like the big greasy meat you know every single day you were a pioneer in new york city for 18 days scouring for the best new york sliced cheese pizza did you come to a conclusion and this is all scientific so for science and for research for everything of course yeah yeah yeah, it's not entirely all for science you know selfless yeah i didn't come to any conclusions i was just there along for the ride you know and i and i honestly didn't feel like i had that perfect slice of pizza i mean i wish i could describe i mean i i actually probably could describe what i would want in my perfect slice of pizza but I did a lot of research. I made a point of going to a lot of different neighborhoods. Tried to do like 18 different neighborhoods for the most part. But man, I had some good pizza. Yeah. That was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it was all just like, okay, anytime a musician goes to New York, there's dozens of people that they just like got to see because New York is the hub yeah. for everything. American classical music and everything. So it was always like, okay, I'll see you tonight and we'll go to this pizza place or we'll like, we'll be in this neighborhood or whatever because I've got the thing. I've got to be able to do this. Right. Like, you've got to be able to you gotta allow work. me to have this opportunity. Yeah. And I just, I love that. And, you know, for me, going out and eating, I really enjoy it. And, it, you know, it has been disappointing during the pandemic because like, I don't really feel like it's necessary to like go out and eat at a restaurant it's definitely super important to like support small businesses and support restaurants and stuff like that and like get stuff to go but i definitely do miss the feeling of like either going out to a restaurant alone and just like you know having my personal pizza and beer or whatever and just like not talking to anybody and i also miss going out with like a big group of people and trying all these things on the menu yes. and just like knowing what to order and just being like i could be waiting at this this do you want this or do you want this uh-huh. this okay great Great. And that's my favorite way to spend time with people when there's good food, good drinks at a place, you know, good, great company, nothing better than a dinner party, whether it's at home or it's out at a great restaurant or something like that. Like it's just it feels so comforting. 
Yeah, well, and it reminds me so much of a concert in a way, too. I mean, that's what we do as musicians is we try to bring our community together. And food is just another vehicle to do so rather than a performance. Yeah, it's and it's one that everyone can enjoy. Like my mom would always say when I was a kid, good food, good mood. And she's not wrong. So. It's true, especially like with like the creation of like Chef's Table. And oh of course, God. like Jiro Dreams of Sushi and like, you know, yes. all these shows that are coming out. And it's really applicable to what we do. Yes. Like there was a particular Chef's Table episode with Nancy Silverton. Mm -hmm. She was talking about how there's plenty of pizza in the world. I just want to do my own very good take on what I believe a pizza should taste like. And it's like, hello, how many times have we played a Beethoven symphony or like right. a Beethoven sonata or something like that? How many recordings are there, are there of all of these pieces? And it's like, I... I love this music. I love the fact that this exists and I want my own personal take on it. Right. Absolutely. Like, God, that was so like validating and mm -hmm. reassuring. You know, people might get sick of certain pieces, you know, and we should be doing more to like prop up those repressed voices and stuff like that for sure. But may I use your analogy of eating a slice of New York pizza at least once a day for 18 days and how you said your body was not okay with it. It's the same thing. Like if we saturate ourselves with just one composer, you know, we don't want to hear that every day. That's like an earworm. That's something that we don't, we want variety in our music and we want variety in our food. Well said. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you were going to say something I mean, that. No, no. I mean, that. well, well done. <laughs> <laughs> Have you gone yeah. to Nancy Silverton's pizzeria in Mozart, Los Angeles? Of course. I've I never mean, it's been. It's great. Is it good? Okay. It's not like the best pizza I've ever had, you know, oh. but it is a good pizza. You know, when you're not just going for like a margarita or whatever, like when you're going for like one of those more specialty bourgeoisie pizzas or whatever, you know, yeah. with like Like you're going to cut it with a fork and knife kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, there's like burrata and like an egg or something like that. Right. And, you know, it's like things that would make Italians mad probably. But at the same time, <laughs> it's just like, that's your own take and that's your own spin and that's your you know what you grew up with and i love food i, I really do and <laughs> you know especially like the cheap low-key eats like the bourdain right. style places where you know it's just like frills are great fancy great whatever but also i just want a good experience yeah, yeah i mean that leads me to one of my questions for you how do you search for a place to explore and try new cuisines or restaurants is it word of mouth is it google search yeah what do you do everything I mean, <laughs> it's it's seriously like, and a lot of it is just like serendipity too. I mean, I remember when I first got to SFCM, my dad and I, we were walking around San Francisco. Like, you know, I think at that point I was having like a really hard time adjusting to life on my own and like life with a roommate and life in college. And so, you know, we were just like walking around and we stumbled across two places in the Tenderloin that became absolute staples once a week consistently throughout my entire undergrad it was lahore karahi for indian food and saigon sandwich and I, why did i go with you ever what am i doing wrong in, in my time did you never go to these places no I'm oh my god the tenderloin, frankly, well I, I mean yeah and especially like you know as a lady walking through the tenderloin alone especially at night does not sound fun no it's even for me i was kind of just like is this it <laughs> 
but we saw these places and there was something about it where we were just like these could be really really good places and Saigon Sandwich was incredible Lahore Karahi is still the best Indian food I've ever had in my life and it's not close so Saigon Sandwich it was just like this really small hole in the wall banh mi's were 375 a sandwich and that's all you need you know it's just right. like five spice chicken with like the mayo and the hoisin sauce and like the carrots and the daikon radishes and the jalapeno slices and what more could you possibly ask for exactly right. especially when you're like living in the most expensive city in the yes. country and paying to go to a conservatory that's why you busk that's you could right. literally go up and pay in like the small change that you get or whatever. And then Lahore, it was just like such quality food. And it was also BYOB. So you could just pull up there with like a good local beer or like some wine or whatever and order enough food for like five people and get out of there for like 14 bucks a person or whatever and feel like overwhelmingly full. I need to and go yeah, back in time, like, Michael. Yeah. We need to go back in time and hang out a lot more in San Francisco. <laughs> Like I, I why, why didn't were, we hang out? Yeah. <laughs> or not not why didn't we hang out? Why didn't we have food together all the time? We because... we definitely should have. In hindsight, I'm kind of just like you know the experience could have been a whole lot better. You know, with people who were like just as down. Yes, right. And like we did have a lot of overlap in places that we went. Like we went to Santung all the time. Yes. Oh my. god god oh, they're chicken wings and like marnie thai you know mm -hmm. another place and you lived right in the inner sunset which That's is just true. no fair because like you <laughs> had that that was your local thai place oh for sure yeah 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 and also we were super blessed because like even in hayes valley it was like you had so many Arlican. of those places are closed now though that's the only problem and like Lero, yeah. Lero i don't yeah. know how that's to the pronounce. thai place as well yep right across from davies symphony hall really really quality stuff yeah really really good and not terribly expensive either. I, I feel very spoiled in general. Just living in California, so much good food. Yeah. So everything is fresh. All the produce is fresh. All the seafood is fresh. And then when you go across the country, there's different pros and cons, right? I mean, like in Texas, there is Tex-Mex. For me, when I lived in Houston, there's barbecue, there's burgers and American, you know, style food. And also in Houston, there's a lot of Vietnamese food as well, actually. That's quite good and some really good ramen. And then in the Twin Cities, there's also, there's really good Vietnamese here and a lot of other scatterings of things. But yeah, geographically speaking, California California has really it's best got it all. the best. Yeah, yeah, it's got, really got yeah. it all. And that also kind of leads It's also to... got competition. Yes, which sucks for them, but is good for us. <laughs> oh, it's so great. Capitalism I mean, at its best, you know? <laughs> uh, those Friday evenings from 6 to 6.30 at 19th and Judah were yes. the best times of 2014 to 2015 for me. I'm sure you went there a lot more than I did. No, I but... didn't actually. I didn't, but this reminds me of on Autumn Chodorowsky's episode, we actually talked about Taco the, Shop at Underdogs. At Underdogs, yes. So there was this window from 6 to 6.30 where you can get $1 margaritas and just like what, $3 tacos or something? Really reduced. And $2 tecates. Right, right, right. It was a circus disaster because 30 minutes nonstop, Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville playing on loop. Right. And you have all the bartenders, all the waiters and waitresses are just like walking around with an ice pail and a pitcher full of margaritas. They're just like topping you up. Somehow they're able to keep Calculate. track of how many drinks each person had, which is crazy. Yeah. One time I had nine. <laughs> 
no. How'd you, you just can't um, Well, I, it was a sort of a competition. But you know, do you know Ephraim? He and I went. This was like after all my grad school auditions were done. He was like, yeah, I can, you know, I can drink a lot. Oh, whatever. no, it became a drink. Yeah, like I want to see, I want to, I want to see, you know, I want to see you actually like try and drink. And I was like, I mean, okay, whatever. You know, we kept a little tally on napkins or whatever. I don't know, maybe he let me win, but I did win. <laughs> and then I lived in the outer sunset off the L, so I had to take the 29 back. Right. The fact that I made it home, it was a miracle. Yeah, because, with all the books, yeah. I mean, it's just, I'm glad it happened early. Yeah. I was able to recover right. all day. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, and I feel like this is like a Sophie's Choice situation. What is your favorite cuisine? That is a really difficult question to ask. I couldn't answer um, it. I could answer it by narrowing it down to like a particular kind of region. You know, whenever I leave California, and especially when I leave Southern California, I miss Korean food more than anything else. Interesting. I really do. But that um, makes sense. LA has a huge Korean barbecue, like Koreatown. I mean, really. Yeah. And it is fantastic. I have to say, like, I'm not really a fan of Korean food. And everyone is like mad That's at me fine. when I say that. I, I get just, it. No, but I understand though. Like if it's in LA, yes. But for me outside of it, I'm just like, I'd rather have Chinese. I'd rather have Japanese. Oh, I completely agree. Okay. I mean, it's just like, why would you? Uh, the other thing like, too is yeah. I also don't eat red meat. So I think that limits me when it comes to cream it of burkey. I get, I get chicken, but you know, it's, yeah, it's not quite the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't eat pork, but I imagine like the pork dishes are also crazy good. When I leave LA and because this is not controversial to say LA is Koreatown is untouchable. People in New York like to say like, our Koreatown's so good. Like what does LA Koreatown have that we don't? And it's like, LA Koreatown is maybe the size of Manhattan. Right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to speak for Korean people, but most of the Korean people I talk to say, you go to LA Koreatown, you experience things there that it's simply you don't find that outside of Korea. Right. What are you going to say? You know, what I've been told is that it's pretty elite. I mean, so yeah, but, we're just spoiled yeah. again. <laughs> like, I yeah. mean, I went to USC, yeah. so Koreatown was in my backyard, you know, and I- It's right you know. there. But yeah, even more than pizza, even more than tacos and burritos and stuff like that, I really struggle being away from Koreatown. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So when I'm in a situation like yours, because I would say for me, you can't take Mexican food away from me. That mm. is my like soul food growing up. When I am transported to another city that does not have a huge vibrant scene for me, I'm sorry to say, there are some really good Mexican places in the Twin Cities, but it's not ever going to be the same. I know I grew up with a particular taste profile and I, I have a vision for like what that is. So yeah. for me, I try my best to recreate that vision do you try similar things for you when you're lacking and yeah okay so what things have you successfully been able to recreate last year ari lipschick she <gasps> like Hi, posted something on her instagram of the new york times how to recreate a mission style burrito simple as that i was just like i'm gonna work with that i'm gonna that seems doable for me and you know it's like it's enough for me to be like okay this was fine this sort of satisfied some craving or whatever but i'll do the same with korean food with drunken noodles mm -hmm. with korean food like i'll cook dakalbi, which it's like a spicy marinated chicken with like rice cakes and perilla leaves 
leaves and sweet potatoes and stuff like that on a uh-huh. cast iron or something like that. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. so good. But there are certain things where I'm just like, I'm not going to go out and spend money on an inadequate product. Yes. Like, I'm just not going to do that. Right. And I'm also not going to spend $4 on a mediocre taco. Right. That's no. just not going to happen. That's out of the question. And yes. this sparked a lot of controversy when I lived in Cleveland because people in Cleveland, they like to go to this place called Barrio. And that in itself was already like a little bit of like cultural appropriation and just like what does that mean like what barrio like so they had like you know these coca-cola braised carne asada tacos with like mayonnaise and like pineapple slaw or something like that (laughs) and god i'm just like getting all riled up thinking about it (laughs) so that sounds like a i'm 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 having to i'm having to bring myself down yeah yeah breathe yeah like it second okay so People liked it, obviously. I just moved to Cleveland, and people were talking about this, like, Mexican food that's, like, not that bad. And I was like... That's clue number one. Not that bad? So, my God. Yeah, I just moved there. I really didn't want to be that guy who was like, yeah, this isn't as good as something you could get in California. But this place was so repulsive that I had, like, one bite of this taco. And whatever that experience was that Antoine Ego had in that scene in Ratatouille, this was the exact opposite. (laughs) This was basically just like, I'm going to throw my taco down in rage. Yes. And, you know, it was like, you can add all these fixing... Like, fixing how dare you? Yeah. You add meat. You add salsa. You add onions and cilantro. And if you feel like adding more lime or a radish or, like, you know, some pickled carrots or jalapenos or whatever, you know, do you, but, like... Corn tortilla, too. And it was on a flour tortilla. No! <laughs> and now, so flour tortillas, when done right, fine if you can do it in a convincing way like there there are a couple places in la right now that are really flying with the flour tortilla tacos like there's sonora town in downtown and then there's this truck called el russo in boyle heights east la that's really really good and they're flour like sonoran style flour tortillas and they're like really doughy and delicious i miss them but I was really repulsed by this place, Barrio. And it was like this two-year-long struggle where people would just be like, let's just go to Barrio and get margaritas or something. And I was like, no, I'm not giving that place any, any of my money. hard-earned money. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Sorry to anybody who's listening right now who enjoys going to Barrio or whatever. Like Gabby Skinner, you're probably going to be listening right now. And you're going to be thinking, I didn't think Barrio was that bad. And I think you're wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> This is going to be like the the falling off point for some people. We're going to lose a lot of listeners at at some point, you know. For the passionate fans of Hiding Behind the Music Stand (laughs) who also love Barrio, leave. No, I'm sorry. No, don't leave. Just just go and get yourself a really authentic taco. Like, just take a trip to Southern California. Just or yeah, even I don't even have to be there. Like, I also pride myself in being a very good vicarious tour guide. Yes, I can be that source of just like, okay, if you're here, go here. If you're here, go here. If you're here, just avoid that area. But if you're here, go here. You know, like I will be that guy. This is 
inspiring me to say, Michael, we should take a foodcation together. I will destroy it. I Because I'm pretty like type A. If I'm going to a place or if, if I'm setting my sights on like a food tour, I'm going all in. It's going to be like nice. It's going to be dollar tacos. It's going to be like whatever. I commit. You're serious. <laughs> I commit. And like I'll even like schedule hikes or like runs, you know, just so I can have like the extra room. <laughs> That's funny. Like, in all your searching and discovery of food and being a foodie, how does that relate to your musicianship? Man, that's a great question. It's a bit of an outlet. It's kind of like something completely different, you know, especially at a place like New World where you live and work with everybody at all times it's nice to not be thinking about music or thinking about other colleagues or whatever or like thinking about like what just happened in a rehearsal or whatever it's nice to just be like oh yeah this chef was talking about that yeah or like this restaurant is so good or i can't wait to try something else you know it's just like separate Uh I, i mean it sort of dictates like how i live my life a little bit because i don't eat super healthy i'm not gonna lie i eat pizza a lot and i eat like meat and potatoes and rice and yeah i'll have a salad every day or whatever but i definitely eat a lot and i enjoy that i really really do and i know that in order to not get completely out of control i need to like do something to mitigate that so i try and like walk every day or i try and like run a certain amount of times a week or like you know i go on long bike rides or whatever like i do you know i do certain things so i can feel perfectly fine indulging having five slices of pizza and maybe some ice cream and maybe a few beers and living your best life i mean that sounds best life yeah because it's very it's all very harmonious you know because it's like all right you know i'll go practice and then i'll have like a nice meal or whatever and then go for a walk and like you know feel a little better about everything and also like go outside and like maybe i'll look at the sunset or whatever it's just like you know that is like a high functioning day in the life of michael turkel food how it relates to music and being a musician it's a nice way to like spruce up the you know sometimes very tedious way of being for like a musician who doesn't have tenure in an orchestra yet and who doesn't have a whole lot in the way of job security it's like all right you know we get it done we have something to look forward to and we can process that in a healthy way or something like that i don't know one other question that i was curious about since you did all the cruise ships and stuff what was the most adventurous cuisine or food that you had that you thought maybe going into it i'm not sure if i'm gonna like it and then you're like no this is dope you're gonna hate me so i michael turkel don't eat things that swim oh or live in the water really really so i don't eat fish i don't eat seafood you know or shellfish and stuff like that so much of my diet (laughs) i know and i wish i had it because i feel like that would just open the floodgates for like so many more things but you're just not a fish person or i don't get it like just not a fish person you just don't like fish something about it Ooh, i want to convince you otherwise i know so i really do try to find the gateway because that really always been the trick for me was like finding the gateway whether that's like finding the gateway for tomatoes or for vegetables or for things that are healthier because i grew up with like pasta and pizza and fried chicken and stuff like that you won't live a very long life i don't think if that's your concentration Um, so 
spent two summers in Alaska. What do you got to do in Alaska? You got to have salmon. You have to have the salmon. You have to have salmon. They have And you also got to try like cod and Mm -hmm. rockfish and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And I did. And you know what? It was good. Good. And I I had Some of their smoked salmon is the best smoked salmon I've ever had. It sets the standard. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the crazy thing about being in Alaska is that, especially in like August, you go to like a creek or like a body of water and it's literally entirely full of salmon doing their runs mm-hmm. and the salmon are like huge like yes. some of them are like five feet long or mm-hmm. something like i had no idea that they were so plentiful and so large and just like the fact that they're able to like just swim around and then jump up these giant like waterfalls and creeks and stuff like that and you know they have all these predators and oh my god it's unbelievable what but, a nuts yeah, fish i know absolutely crazy and then they'll just it's so cool i didn't know i needed to see that in my life and then i went to alaska and saw like actual salmon runs and i was like wow that's amazing yeah so i had fish and i (laughs) you know i had like fish i had like a local ipa from this brewery that i started really like in juneau alaska called devil's club brewing company and i had some fish and i posted about it told my parents about it and they were like we're so proud of you oh my god (laughs) you know it's still not regularly part of my diet or whatever like there will still be experiences where i'll like smell scallops or whatever and be like oh that's not for me Mm. that's super not for me okay yeah that was the most adventurous thing i did i would say well i sounds so sad i am inspired (laughs) to like change your mind about fish i'm gonna need to do it many beautiful ways of making fish okay it's just so we gotta hang out it's just yeah (laughs) yeah because it's been we have to go i have to go there or something it's been six years or something right i know i know know. too long well anyway can i ask you two final questions of course what in your opinion is the most common misconception of classical music and the classical music world that we're stupid okay i love this go on yeah especially for those of us who go to conservatory you know maybe it's like a generational thing but i think a lot of people think that we're just like stupid musicians or like stupid lemmings or stuff like that and you know we went to like a coloring book school or something like that i think that couldn't be further from the truth because first of all we love what we do and what we do involves a lot of thorough research and it involves using a lot of different parts of our brain so that's one thing a second thing is that most of us who did classical music growing up or whatever we also did really well in other subjects too and could probably hold our own in plenty of other subjects you know if it came to that i mean there are people here at new world even who were sort of feeling disillusioned you know not having auditions to prepare for and not having music to prepare for every single week who went and studied for the lsat and scored in the 99th percentile Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have crazy work ethics and we read a lot. We're constantly looking for inspiration. And, you know, I think maybe this narrative is a little more apparent at music schools that are part of a university. So it's like, you know, you go to Northwestern, which is, you know, maybe what, like the seventh best school in the country or something like that. And it's just like, yeah, but you go here for music. And it's like, yeah, but I got into the school. And right. right. Yeah. But, you know, I still have to take these classes that, that other people take. And, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. yeah, I'm also getting a degree from Northwestern. Yeah, like you had to have a good enough GPA to even get into that school to begin with. You did. You really did. Even at Rice. Rice is a great academic school. And to go to Rice, you have to be pretty smart and you have to be very, very good at something, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe that something is music, but there are very few people who are classical musicians or even other musicians who are stupid because it's also just like such a subjective term. I I was about to just say, it's also how do we quantify what intelligence or stupidity is? We're brought up in this education system where we prioritize certain areas of intelligence as marked being intelligent. Like if you're not excellent at like, let's say science or math or something, that doesn't mean that you're not a smart person. Like that just means that that might not be your strength in however your brain chemistry works. And I think there's a very streamlined view of how we qualify or quantify intelligence. Yeah, It's like, I think, a flawed view and system to begin with, because everyone yeah. has intelligence in ways that are even outside of academia. You know, I think maybe it's just like a misconception that entertainers shouldn't have brains or whatever. Like entertainers should be there to entertain and then go backstage and never be heard from. Right. And I have a lot of feelings about that, you know, whether it's athletes or musicians or artists or whatever. Stand-up comedians. Yeah. Stand-up comedians. Absolutely. We're always responding to the times and we're always adapting to things. And that is one of the more common misconceptions among our field is that like, we went to conservatory, so we're probably not very smart. We're just like good musicians or whatever. Right. Like we're good skilled individuals. And it's just like, well, no. Thanks for bringing no. it up. I've been victim of that or people have assumed that of me and I get really upset because I'm like, I think yeah. I'm a little smarter than you think. <laughs> like, Yeah, it's not fair. Yeah, yeah. it's really- I, I have really... some clever moments, like trust me. <laughs> yeah, and it's like people bring some subject up or whatever just like you probably don't know anything about it's like what yeah right (laughs) i know a lot about that yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right my second question after all the impact that COVID has done to classical music what do you think is something positive that will enhance and carry on in our profession good question you know i think a lot of orchestras a lot of ensembles were not prepared to lose audiences COVID and all of the social justice initiatives i don't think a lot of ensembles were prepared to reckon with either of these subjects let alone both at the same time. I think a lot of arts organizations probably need to rethink and perhaps restructure how they make money and how they sustain themselves. A lot of orchestras need to consider what it actually means to be an orchestra, which is a very old antiquated art form or, you know, any chamber music ensemble, what it means to be that in the 21st century. And then also what it means to be that in America in the 21st century. And there's so much to say there's so much work to be done really there's so much work to be done our bodies go crazy if we have pizza 18 days in a row our people are going crazy the model was working but also fading there were a lot of orchestras that were struggling to fill their hall. It's like, why Why is that? I don't know. I'm not a CEO. I'm not, it's above my pay grade to answer those questions. But at the same time, it's like, let's figure out what we can do differently. You know, when we can all safely get back on stage together, it's like, all right, yeah. What is it that wasn't working? Why did we have so many empty seats in our hall? And why did so many more people show up? We have these wall casts and there's like a 100 foot wall outside 
of our hall and like thousands of people will show up to watch a concert for free and just like sit on the lawn drink wine or whatever and it's like that sounds delightful yeah i would rather uh, not rather sometimes there's pros and cons right like you want to get that in the hall acoustic experience but at the same time you sacrifice any kind of leisure that you want to experience with a glass of wine or sitting in a blanket under the stars or whatever just not feeling so fancy and yeah i mean feeling like so bourgeoisie yeah yeah we do need to reinvent the concert going experience for people and make it less about some kind of tiered status classist yeah Yeah, situation (laughs) yeah i mean i have a lot to say about this subject but i also think that music education needs a big reckoning we have this model in place right now that's you go to an undergrad for four years you get a master's degree and that's two years maybe three but i just think that's such a waste of money and oh my gosh don't even don't even i know like like this is coming from someone that did 10 years of schooling legit straightforward i was very lucky with my scholarships so i didn't have to break the bank much but i'm just saying like i went through a lot of schooling and let me tell you i think i gained a lot from that experience of course i gained a lot but i also think that there's something systemically that should not have been necessary for me to do and also consider the people who are in school right now who are in music school right now what are you doing what are you getting out of being in school right now you're not getting to play an orchestra which you know sometimes that's good sometimes that's bad you're not getting to play in chamber music you're not getting to play in studio class you're not getting to play with your accompanist you're not getting to play with you know you're not getting to collaborate with pianists or other musicians like you're missing so much of your critical formative musical years and you're still paying tuition like full tuition for that i have a problem with that that really doesn't sit well with me but also even not during a pandemic i think about like the last semester of my undergrad and how I spent that year trying to get to a good grad school you know so it was just like the whole year I was playing one concerto and two movements of Bach and the same Paganini Caprice and maybe a sonata and then you know maybe for a little bit I thought about my recital or whatever but it's just like Like we waste so much in resources you know we really set ourselves back and for what And then, you know, it's like you get to a master's degree for two years. What can you possibly do in two years unless you're like ready to get that job or whatever, you know, unless you've like figured it all out for yourself. But it's like, you know, you go and set up in a new city, you go and set up with a new teacher or whatever, and you have two years to figure things out. It's like, that's not a lot of time. That's a lot of pressure. I feel like there needs to be some shifting around a little bit, whether it's like, I don't know, add another semester to a master's degree or something like that. And you figure out like the cost and you know hopefully that won't break the bank or something i mean this is i have not put a lot of thought into this no but i think you're bringing up a very good point of the structure of a stereotypical classical music career is that it begins really when you decide usually in high school that you want to go into music and then you go into undergrad and then you go into masters and then if you're someone like me you go and do two more degrees for some reasons and then you do some other festivals or whatever you know what i mean yeah it's almost required that everyone gets an undergraduate it's almost required again to get a master's and there's something in there that needs to be rehashed out and i think that that's at least i mean we can't answer all the questions right now and also we're it's above our pay grade as well but we need to like at least airing out that question and questioning it i think is a really good start that's why we're here (laughs) right yeah i did think about this and luckily it was never really asked but I always wondered, you know, in 2014, 15, when I was like auditioning for master's programs and stuff like that, I never had an answer for the hypothetical question. So what do you get out of a master's degree? <laughs> I don't know. Right. I don't know. You get a new teacher. Yeah. 
maybe you get some more opportunities in your ensembles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So yeah, I think to answer your question, there are a lot of questions that music schools, conservatories, and arts organizations need to answer, you know, about like, hey, maybe what's not working or what could be done a little more efficiently? And like, why are things just not getting better, even without a global health crisis present? Don't know. But I think there are people who make X amount of money who could probably stand to get on that. Obviously, this is like, I can see the slope down into conversation and right. I want to keep it going, but I, but this is, we've talked a lot. <laughs> this is definitely a good starting place for any, yeah. anyone listening. Let's yeah. question why we do the things that we do. Why no. do we do things that the, the way we do them? You know, right. like I think every now and then it's important to check in and see, is right. this relevant like, still? Is it something that did this work and yeah. does it still? Well, anyway, Michael, are there any platforms or websites for listeners to learn more about you and any upcoming projects? You know, maybe I'm old fashioned or whatever. I don't even have a website. This is crazy. I just have my social media where I go from causes pertaining to social justice to memes to a you lot know, of food and puppies, a lot of food and puppies and, you know, bike rides and sunsets and stuff like that. I had a concert on February 1st that was streamed to New World Symphony's Instagram page. We played Souvenir to Florence and Brahms' G Major Sextet, but that's really all I got, you know? I mean, we just have, like, our subscription season that's ongoing right now, and I think some of these performances are streamed to New World Symphony's Facebook and YouTube live pages, but other than that, you know, just, like, be a good citizen, I guess. (laughs) So New World's website is nws.edu. Great. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, go ahead and press that subscribe button and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews and ratings really help this podcast be more visible to others, and it's a free way to support the podcast. Another free way is to tell your friends and family about it, and you can always become part of the Hidden Behind the Music Stand family by donating to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Stand. Don't forget, there's a Spotify playlist available that contains all the pieces we've discussed on the podcast. It's a huge collection right now, but really don't be intimidated. It's really all great music. And the link is always in the description of each episode. Follow us on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Hyden Music Stand. Michael, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's so great to reconnect and see that you're doing so well. Patty, thank you so much for having me. This was such an honor and such a fun time. And I swear, three hours has never gone by so quickly. Like, <laughs> we we talked about such cool, important things. And yes, we should hang out, you know, yes. before another six years passes by. Oh, seriously. And also, like, we need to grab food, have great drinks, great company, great music. Next time next time at Underdogs. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think we want our, our nights, you know, to last longer than than just that then 30 you know, minutes like, yeah exactly <laughs> 30 minutes and like a blackout 15 minutes later you know right that's yeah, that's yeah. not ideal for a, a long lengthy food tour no no not at all but you know yeah. i'm looking forward to the next time we can hang out in person it's gonna be great yeah and thanks for listening say bye sushi <laughs>